Well, let's take our Bibles together and turn to Revelation. Just a shout out to Paul Woodall, who uh, is here till 2.33 in the morning. I'm not sure, uh, trying to get this stuff working, but uh, a valiant effort, but sometimes electronics, you know. I know it's first world problems, but we're grateful that we've got some backups here. Anyway, hopefully this hasn't been too distracting this morning. I was reminded as we were thinking through one of the things the elders, we tell one another, the word of God is not bound. So there's no way that anything can prevent the word of God going out. So um, God will make sure that that happens. And we're going to look at the word right now. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through verse 29, which is the rest of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your safe service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you, Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I do bow with me in a prayer of preparation. Father God, your word is not You have determined that it should be proclaimed, and you will not prevent that from happening. And however, by whatever human means, uh, Lord, we know that your word will land on the minds and hearts of those you determined to hear it. So, Father, we are servants of your word right now in this place. I, as the proclaimer, and all of us as hearers, we need to hear from you. We need your voice to be above the voice of a man. We need to hear what you have to say to us. We want you to do the work in our lives that only your work can do by your spirit applying it, which is making us wise, opening our eyes to salvation in Jesus and, and sanctifying our lives and, and, and forming us into the very character of your Son, our Savior, we pray. Do that. Do that now. God, I'm weak, easily distracted, so I don't want to get in the way of this. Father, would you... Make your word clear to us this morning. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Before I get into the text, I was just thinking just this last week about just the task of preaching. I want to remind you what I'm doing. I mean, I, I know you know I'm standing up here and preparing to preach. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said this. He said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It tells us there the commentary around his words. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's John chapter 12. Now Jesus in this passage, when he said that, he defined that lifted up means that he's going to declare the means of his the means of his death would ultimately be by crucifixion. And the result would be as a result of that, that Jesus would draw people to himself. But that word lifted up in, in the original, it's it means to lift high, to exalt, to dignify, to raise up. And it's a play on words if you if you look at this. See, my task this morning in, in preaching is to lift up Jesus. And the gospel does just that. When we proclaim the gospel of Christ, when we teach and preach from the scriptures, it lifts Jesus up. And as a result, Jesus said he'll draw people to himself. So Jesus does the dying and rising. And the message that we proclaim about his dying and rising and the reason he did it, that draws people to himself. And so I'm reminded what the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians. He said to them, I decided to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There isn't any more important thing than that. I want to know that. I want to be, that to be the message. So when Christ is lifted up, when he is exalted, he draws people to himself. You are drawn to Jesus. And that is the power of the gospel. That's where we preach the gospel. That's where we open the word of God and move systematically through it. And when you hear it, that Jesus lifted up, you will, if you're far from God, the spirit determines to apply it. You will find forgiveness and freedom from sin's power. And it makes all the difference in your life. The importance of proclaiming the word of God. And I trust that the, the spirit of God could use our time in the word this morning to do just that as we seek to lift up Christ. Well, getting to the specific text. It begins here. Uh, well, that's in the beginning. But at the end, it, it says this. It says, he who has an ear... That's to say, if you can hear, listen up, the Spirit has a message for the churches. Now, as I've been studying these, these letters, it's all part of Revelation, these seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. We've seen these similarities in the messages. And we've seen some commonalities through. If you've read through them all, you, you will see the commonality of suffering and, and persecution. There's an affirmation for the faithfulness of, of God's people, but there's a rebuke in almost all of them, except for one. A rebuke for error. And ultimately a call to repentance, but also a threat of judgment where there is none, where there's no repentance. And as we take these words to heart this morning, keep that in mind. But the Spirit affirms what Jesus affirms, we ought to do, we ought to embrace. What Jesus rebukes, we ought to avoid. And if we find it in ourselves, we need to repent of it. And in all of this, to be reminded that 
We're listening up. Jesus has a message for us. Now, to the specifics of our text this morning. This one is to Thyatira. Now, um, someone challenged me several weeks ago. Why don't you put a map up? I'm just not good with the, the audiovisual. But just picture this, okay? Isle of Patmos. Immediately east in, there's a circle of churches, okay? So all of these are written to churches in a kind of a, a circle. So uh, it's, it starts with Ephesus, goes to Smyrna, goes to Pergamum. So it's moving up the coast and inland, eastward, Pergamum. And then more east and slightly to the south, that's where Thyatira is. So if you're looking at the Aegean Sea on a map, Patmos is out here. Ephesians circles up to Smyrna, circles up to Pergamum down to Thyatira, and next week we'll uh, pick up Sardis, then Philadelphia, then Laodicea, and then come to So you can look it up in your Bible if you have a paper Bible. So that's where it's set. Um, we know about this city uh, it's one, as a, one of the seven churches in the circle. Uh, Lydia in Acts, she's a seller of purple. She's from that city. But most importantly, uh, it's specifically to this church, but it, it is broadly speaking for all the churches, all the churches of the letters, receivers of the letters, they get the specifics. They're not divided up and handed out. All the letters go to all the churches. And these are the words in this case. Jesus declares himself as the Son of God. And this is the first and only time in Revelation we see Jesus identify himself as the Son of God. And we see here that he's got eyes of flames. That's that's hearkening back to chapter 1, verse 14. And, and those eyes of flames are symbolic of Jesus' omniscience. He sees. Nothing escapes his view. And then he's got these burnished feet of bronze. That harkens back to chapter 1, verse 15. And it's a symbol of his omnipotence, his power. So he sees all. He has the power to do all. And so when we hear this message from the Son of God who sees all and can do all, it's weighty. It's meant to be weighty. We're meant to feel the weight of it. He says, I know your works. I know everything about you, the good and the bad. And know this, I have the power to judge. So as we move through this text this morning, I haven't given you my, my outline, but here's, here's the first heading that I kind of want to work with. First of all, I want to look at Jesus' affirmation for the growing, okay? So that, that's one of, the, one of the things that Jesus is affirming. He's affirming them for their growth. Now, gardeners, you get this. Those, I know some of you plant gardens. Uh, you plant those seeds with the full expectation with light and, and, and water. They will germinate and grow, right? You fully expect those plants to grow up and then bear fruit. And if they don't, something is wrong. That just makes sense to us. It's obvious. And I'm grateful, frankly, for many of you who do have bumper crops of tomatoes. Thank you very much for sharing those with us. Love them. Keep them coming. No, that's not a... Can them do whatever you want, but, you know, if you have extras, I, I don't mind them. I don't mind them. Just saying. Uh, but we get that, right? And parents, you get this. You expect your nursing child to be weaned, to get a driver's license to move out of the house and get married, right? Well, of course, there's a lot of steps in between, right? And we understand, it's, nobody has to explain this to us. The 30-year-old man who has no job living in his parents' basement playing video games, I think we agree, like, not quite right, not quite right. We expect maturity. That's normal for physical growth. We also expect spiritual maturity. Jesus is affirming spiritual maturation in this church. He says, I know your works, verse 19, your love and faith 
and service and patient endurance. This is the thing that he is affirming. Now, Jesus here is con uh, affirming four virtues. He's commending them. Your, your love and faith, service and patient endurance. And I, I think we can all agree that, that these should be evident in all who are growing in Christian maturity, right? We, we look at these words and go, yeah, I, I, want, I would like that to be said about me. So maybe you think at this moment, it might be fruitful for us to even talk about these. But I do want to give focus to these, these virtues. And I think they're meant to be considered as pairs. It's, it seems the way in which they're, they're explained. Together, the first two, love and faith. What those do is they describe a general disposition towards God, right? The internal motive, your love and faith. These things Jesus is affirming. Now, if we think about this, love and faith, they're very much linked together, right? at least as it regards God. And I think you'd agree that love for God is going to be dependent on faith in God. You can't love what you don't believe in, right? And faith in God, trust, is very much dependent on actually caring about God, loving Him, right? Now, in the scriptures, we know this, that Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So we know from the scriptures that what Jesus is affirming is already commanded by God. And we know this, brothers and sisters, don't we? There's so many things, so many things that compete for our affections. But God commands that he be first and foremost in our lives and in our affections. And when we think about this, again, God is somewhat abstract to us, right? It, you know, we find it easy to love those in our family, to love our friends, love your wife, love your husband. And in some sense, God, we don't see, we don't touch, we just read about him. But, but we have to think, we have to set our minds on why God is calling us to love him first and foremost. Because he is eminently and infinitely lovable. God is eternally good. He is glorious, eternally glorious. He is true. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He is wise, knowing, and he is holy. And there could be more. Those are glorious perfections. All of those expressions are, are ultimate, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely and utterly beautiful. And while we do not behold him with our eyes, there's a beauty about the very character of God. He is worth loving. But add to that. So those, those general truths about God, add to that his grace and his mercy, which, which is God's patient dis, um, disposition towards us when we fall short. Grace and mercy. So when we think about this command to love God and think about what Jesus is commending, there is no one more worthy of our supreme affections. And when you love God, heart, soul, and mind with everything in you, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're in agreement with what ought to be. There's an oughtness about loving God. Just his very nature demands that he be the top of our affections. 
And that love by necessity must issue forth, must work itself out in trust. And this is the, the second part of that. He, Jesus affirms them for their love and faith. That is to say, trust. Now I get this. When we think about love and trust. Those two don't always converge in our human-to-human -human relationships, do they? Right? You just think of a child, right? You love a child. But you don't trust them with everything. Right? They have to grow in that. And if you've been betrayed by a friend, you, you may love and forgive, but there may be a period where trust has to be restored. But not so with God. Because he behaves perfectly all times, in every situation. Love and faith in God are always together. We have faith in God, among other things, because of what the scripture tells us. It's, it's the record of God's promises. And so when, when we're called, when Jesus is affirming this faith in these believers in Thyatira, he's saying, you, you've trusted God. What, what are they trusting? Well, they're trusting the record of God's promises made. And when we look at our Bibles, just open them up. God makes promises, then he keeps them. There are promises yet unfulfilled, but we know he's trustworthy to keep them because every single promise he's made that he said will happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it will happen, but so many, so many have been fulfilled. He has accomplished those things. God is perfectly trustworthy. And so, so this, brothers and sisters, is we need to be reminded, right? Where's your love for God? Where's your faith in God? Are you trusting him? The Bible says this about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. And this is as it relates to God, right? It is the assurance of things hoped for. What is hoped for? That which God has promised. When Jesus said, I, I will go to prepare a place for you. The assurance that, yes, he said that. And he will come again and, and take us to himself. That where he is with me be also. It's, and when one has that kind of faith, and if you have that kind of faith, the Bible tells us that God looks at that faith, that trust in his promises, and he counts you righteous in his sight. Because part of the promises that God makes is that he, through his mercy, through his grace, will cover our sin. And when we look outside of inside of ourselves and see our failures, when we look inside of ourselves and see our inability to measure up to God's standard, and we see in his word, he says, I, I've got this. I put my, I put your sin on my son. And when we trust that, God says, you're righteous. So that the scripture says this, we've got to take this to heart. See, if you don't believe God, there's a problem. Right? Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, faith, love and faith together. If you don't trust God, you can't say you love God. If you don't love God, there's no way you can trust him. And the love and the faith of the believers in Thyatira was commended. And likewise, that message to them is a message to us. If you love God, if you're trusting God, he is, the Lord Jesus is commending that. So, let me ask you, What's your own disposition towards God today? Do you love him with everything in you? Do you trust his word? 
This is hard. Look inside yourself. Like, do I love God? Really? Here's, here's something just as a kind of a, a way to apply this, a way to, to think about this. I, I read somewhere years ago, this is a statement which isn't necessarily grammatically correct, but I like it anyway. God's commands are his enablements. That enablements, that, that gets the red underlined in Microsoft Word. So it's not really a word, but, but it, it communicates something. So here's the truth. What God requires of us, he is gracious to give to us. See, our love for God isn't really natural to us. But the Bible tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So if you love God, it's a, it's a divine act working in you, right? It's the Spirit poured into your heart to love God as you want to. So here's, here's what you can do. And I do this almost daily. I think it's a good practice. Pray. Pray that God would increase your love for him. Pray that God would increase your faith in him. Understand this. It's like God isn't saying, you know, how's the love today? You need to, you need to, you need to amp it up a little bit. It's a little, you're running a little low. No, what God calls us to, he gives us. So boldly pray for the things that God commands of you in his word. Boldly pray that God would give it to you so that you do it. Want to want it. God will form that in you. Well, next we see he affirms them for their service, service and patient endurance. That service to God, I take it that it was born from their affection for him. And their endurance that he affirms in the face of the trials and the persecution, that was only possible because they continued to trust the promises of God. You can only suffer persecution. You can only deal with hardship. And brothers and sisters, among us, there are many who suffer not necessarily persecution, but disease, terminal illnesses. And faith is not valid because you believe the promises of God. So even through suffering, there is endurance. So... Let me ask you, does your love and faith show in your service and endurance? It's a good thing to think about. If Jesus affirms it again, how am I doing in that area? So what does the scripture have to say about your service and endurance? That service, whatever form it takes, is ultimately glorifying to God. And if you think about this rightly, it, your body, your whole person is ground zero for working that out. And the reason that you and I must serve God is because he owns us, right? That's what the Bible says. He bought you. He redeemed the Israelites, right, from, from slavery in Egypt to be a possession for the Lord, right? And that typifies what God has done for us. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin, condemning that condemning sin, right? That stuff that would take us to an eternal grave, an eternal separation from God. God redeemed us from that. The consequence of sin, but also its power in the present. We've been rescued that, from that. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your life. And that price was paid, we know this, right, by, by Jesus' vicarious death. He, he died. He died to bear the full weight of God's wrath for your sin and for mine. And so now that we've been rescued, now that we've been 
brought out of slavery to sin, we've also been set apart to serve. It's, it's, we're not brought out of slavery just to do whatever we want. I think it was Bob Dylan years ago, sometimes quote songs, but he said this. You ought to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. There's no, there's no non-service. Either serving God or you're serving the devil. So, better to serve God. He's the perfect, benevolent, all-knowing master. So, having experienced the mercy of God, really the only logical response is serving this is why Paul says this in, in Romans 12, 1, after the explanation of the gospel. In view of God's mercies, what does he say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That imperative, present your bodies. Brothers and sisters, that's not passive. You have to, that's a will, right? You have to act on that. It's a moment-by-moment -moment act of the will to serve God. Now, we, we get this. I hope you get this. God needs nothing from us. We, we don't add to him in any way with our service. But what we need to do, we need to serve God. We need to worship him because that stokes our love and affection for him. That's why God seeks worshipers, John 4.23. And we serve God not only through worship of God upward, but we serve God by serving one another. And each of us have been entrusted with, with abilities, time, stuff, resources, money, possessions. We serve him with that. So let me ask you, does your love for God and your faith in him direct what you do with what you have? Ask yourself that. Do you see your life? If you love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you see you're trusting in his promises, does it show up when you serve the Lord? And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about like we're plugging him into a job in the church. I'm not talking about that. But the Bible tells us that we're, we're to use what God has given to us. In fact, we sing this often from 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. As each has received a gift, use it. It doesn't say, as each has received a gift, you might want to consider. Or if you have the time. Or, or maybe if you, if you can fit it into your schedule. It doesn't give any provisions for excluding it. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards, managers of God's varied grace to you. Those are those unique gifts to you, right? Again, a steward, not an owner. So ask yourself, is the owner pleased with what you're doing with his stuff? Now, the reality of a persecution against the churches in the latter part of the first century meant that believers had to endure. In Pergamum, don't, last week, or the week before, last week, Antipas was killed, so one of the Rome. Smyrna was warned that some would die as martyrs. So whether the suffering in Thyatira was due to the malevolence of others, persecution, or just general suffering like some of us experience, they had demonstrated patient endurance, and that's what Jesus affirms in them. 
And that endurance that they had was with a view, a view, looking past the circumstance, right? With a, a view to the, the eternal joy and ultimate satisfaction in God's promises fulfilled, which is, for us brothers and sisters, Jesus' return. Only faith in God makes it possible to endure that. So whatever we may face, whatever challenge may be before us, you will not face it, you will not endure it, you will not get through it if you do not love God, heart, soul, and mind, and if you do not trust in his promises. As the Apostle Paul says, just about general suffering, he said, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, before I read the next section, you know what Paul went through, right? He was, he was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped, beaten in an inch of his life, shipwrecked out, you know, hanging, floating around in the sea for a day and a half. He says this, for this light and momentary affliction. I don't think any of us call that light and momentary, but that's what he says. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, and this is how, as we look to the things that are, not to the things that are seen, stuff around us, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Look around, it's going away. But the things that are unseen, these are the promises of God, those are eternal. That's how we look to it. Light and momentary in light of that weight of glory. Brothers and sisters, when you suffer, and you will look beyond the eternal weight of glory. Well, faith and love and service and patient endurance. Again, what Jesus commands. But notice the next phrase, and this is this is the whole my whole point here. That your latter works exceed the first. He commends them that their latter works exceed the first. They weren't static. They had love and faith and service and patient endurance at the beginning, but by by the Lord's measure, what was later was more than what was at first. They were growing in maturity. And that's that simple truth, brothers and sisters. Looking at your own life, are you growing? Or have you been stuck in the same place? Has your love for God increased? Is your worship more heartfelt? Does your, do you have greater trust in God? Are you willing to take greater risks based on God's promises? Do you serve with a greater zeal? Do you give more sacrificially? Do you find you can endure even more? Measure yourself. Our lives as believers, they begin with new birth. That's the Holy Spirit in us, right? But, but the, the picture is important, right? But over time, we're to grow and mature. We're not meant to stay the same. And you, brothers and sisters, we have a part in that. When we feed our souls on the word, when we feed our souls on fellowship with the body, and when you stay away and when you avoid the word, you're going to wither. And this is why church members, you know, we, we talk about this at members meetings. If, if we haven't seen someone around for a while and they're wandering away, we say, go get them. It's not about rebuking them. It's about rescuing them from withering and dying spiritually. We don't want that to happen. We expect growth and maturity, but you, you can't grow and mature unless you're connected to God through the word, and to God through fellowship with one another. Feed your soul, 
grow in grace. That's God's will for you. Peter says this, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But, this is the summary of his second letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's God's will for you. Well, next we get to the judgment for the unrepentant. That's that, the next section I see. Sometimes um, pain from an injury is so overwhelming that it's treated with narcotics. Uh, I hadn't had any of those until a couple months ago when I had my, my issue. Um, the pain and discomfort were so great, I got morphine. Some of you know what that's like. I couldn't tolerate the pain. Now, there's a kind of toleration of things that you didn't want, right? Pain imposed upon you. You, you had nothing to do with it. And that's not, that's not an evil. But there's a kind of toleration, which is an active will of the mind to say, eh, it's okay. Something that should be dealt with, which you're not dealing with. Something that's, by your own passivity, you find is destructive, corrupting, and dangerous. You're putting up with something that you shouldn't. And that, that was the case in Thyatira. And that was the cause for the Lord to rebuke them. Verse 20. But I have this against you. There's a word. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. You tolerate it. You're passive towards her. You're, you're putting up with it. You're not dealing with it. This is among you. Jesus says that's a problem. I have this against you. Now, this Jezebel is probably not her real name. But I would say it's a metaphor. She held herself to be some kind of prophetess, and so she was able to advance a body of teaching that, that had infected the church. So she is this person who is teaching things, it's infecting the church, they're not dealing with it, and whether that was by invitation or passivity, it had not been dealt with. That teaching was idolatrous, and, and, and so it's likened here in the text to Canaanite religious practices, and I'll remind you, who Jezebel was in the Old Testament, perhaps nobody names her daughter Jezebel. And this is the reason, right? If you're having a baby, you're not picking Jezebel. And there's a reason. In, in, in the Old Testament, Israel, northern, the northern kingdom, this is after the division, King Ahab, this is what the scripture tells us, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal. So the daughter of this Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And this is what happened to Ahab. He went and served Baal and worshipped. So this wife that he took from the Sidonians, she was a priestess of the goddess Ashtoreth. And so in taking her in marriage, Ahab tolerated her evil worship practices and allowed her to be a significant influence in leading Israel astray. Corrupting, right? So that's why she's used here as this, this archetype of evil. Jezebel in the Old Testament, she actively undermined the worship of Yahweh. And in fact, she went to the, the point of she, she killed many prophets of the Lord. And we read there that except for a hundred that Obadiah had hidden away. The Lord identified the very nature of this heretical teaching. We see in verse 20, it involved, so here it is, seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the presence of this Jezebel 
and her teaching in the church, it lured some away. Lured them into sexual immorality. Now that may have been actual sexual immorality, it's behavior, or it could mean just like metaphorically for idolatry, idolatrous practices. So if you do a word search in the Old Testament for PG-13, just warning you, but you see this word a lot, whoring. There are 32 occasions of that word in the Bible, at least. And of those 32, five are referring to, only five, refer to adultery in marriage. The rest are about idolatry. Many of these in Ezekiel. So eating food sacrificed to idols indicated that, the, that they were participating in some of these idolatrous festivities. Can you imagine that? And they were following this teaching, verse 24, what some call the deep things of Satan. And it may be a mocking representation of what some in the Gnostic heresy, they were calling the deep things of God. So maybe it's a mocking way of referring to that. But whatever the case, this heretical sect claimed that they had access to some secret knowledge of God. The Apostle Peter warned his readers about those who would teach and be uh, that this, the presence of this would, would be in the church. He warned them that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and the destruction is not asleep. This Jezebel metaphor, this creating this association between adultery and idolatry was meant to evoke the sense of revulsion. And that's what it should do. Any idolatrous practice should evoke this sense of revulsion because we get this. The most destructive thing in a marriage is unfaithfulness. And it's possible, but it's very difficult to come back from that, even when there's forgiveness. By God's grace, it does happen. But in, it's in this sense that idolatry is profoundly offensive to God, profoundly. When your affections, you should love God, heart, soul, and mind, but when your affections are seduced to seek your joy in someone or something else, that is spiritual adultery. And the Lord tells this church, like I gave her time to repent, this prophetess, but she was unrepentant, and here's, here's what happened. And remember how Jesus identifies himself, right? He's got flames of fire. He can see what's going on. Nothing's hidden. This is symbolic of his omniscience and his, and his feet with burnished bronze, symbolic of his power. He who knows and sees all will act in power. I gave her time to repent, verse 20, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. That language seems very, very harsh. But understand, her children aren't her physical children. But there are those who follow her teaching. Those who have been brought up in her ways. They will suffer the same result, the same judgment, unless they repent. Now the purpose of this judgment, verse 22. See, why is, why is Jesus saying these things? 
verse 21, sorry. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your words. So why is this going on? Why is Jesus saying this? He wants the churches to know. Look, I see what's going on. You need to know that I see your hearts. Nothing's hidden from me. The thing you're storing up inside, I know what that is. You can do all of the external things to behave in a way that everybody sees and, and thinks, well, he's fine, she's fine. But if your heart is corrupted with idolatry, Jesus says, I, I see that. And if that works its way out and is allowed to fester inside the church, that's the rebuke for the church. And I think that the Thyatira, they, were, they saw this stuff going on, but they were unwilling to draw the line. They were unwilling to say that's not righteous. They were unwilling to put that teaching out. They put up with it. Now, I was thinking, how do I imply this? You know the world, when they look at us in the church, they, they look at us believing Christians, Bible-believing Christians. And they lump us in with, with anyone who makes the claim to be Christian. The world lumps us in with the Catholics, with the word faith people, with the Mormons, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, with the Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans. It's all, it's all the same to them, right? Now, I, I want to be clear here. Our main mission is to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ and faith in him, trusting in his vicarious death as the means to forgiveness and entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, declaring the gospel. But Jesus here is calling out these idolaters and the sexually immoral. Basically, they're the ones who are teaching false things. He's calling them out. So I, I take it that we must not be silent about the dangers of Jezebel's teaching, where we see it. And I think this is true, that Jezebel, and figuratively speaking, has been seducing many today who identify as Christians. She is seducing many today, and perhaps some of us, with her idolatry of self and pleasure. Just think of, think of this. Years ago, when, when one of the popes died, I guess the last one that died while still in the... Like, I had a church member just come after me. It's like, why didn't you honor the, when the pope died? Significant person in the world, sure, but, but the teaching of the Catholic Church, and then particularly the pope today, very confused around matters of sexuality and marriage and while the catholic church affirms the doctrine that we would affirm about marriage between a man and a woman they carved out this safe space for the idea of same-sex unions that aren't marriage it's very confused very confused we we can't we can't partner with them the evangelical lutheran church in america i think they've become anything but evangelical the United Methodists and the, the Episcopalians, for the most part, already welcomed Jezebel in the pulpit. I, I, I read this, and you probably saw this too. It was a Methodist church actually installed in Ray Queen as a pastor. We're not them. And if it ever shows up, we've got to say, that's not what Jesus teaches. We have to be clear with the unbelieving world, and especially, especially, brothers and sisters, with those who are new in the faith. 
We've got to be clear. It isn't that we, we, we stand on judgment against these things. But Jesus died and saved us from our sin. He didn't die to, to give us freedom to sin. And listen, church member, if you should move to another city and join such a church, you're denying Christ. Don't do that. Well, contrasted with the love and faith and service and patient endurance, Jezebel and her, her followers with their spiritual adultery and immorality will be judged. That, that's coming. So Jesus said, it's, it's coming. But in the meantime, don't, don't tolerate that false teaching. Some people once asked Jesus, they wanted to do the right work. What's God looking for from us? What are the things that we should be doing? They asked Jesus this question. They said, what should we be doing? Sorry, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe that all he has said? Do you believe in the word that is his word? Do you trust him? Well, if you do, and here's, here's the reward. If you do, hold fast and conquer. Hold fast and conquer. It sounds like a battle language, because it is a battle, right? You hold fast so that you can win. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do. We're called to hold fast to the faith and conquer. You see, not everybody in Thyatira was seduced by Jezebel, but the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only, this is one thing you need to do, hold fast what you have until I come. Your love, your faith, your service, patient endurance. Hold fast to what you have until Jesus returns. And I'll remind you of the promise because he said he would return. I've already read part of this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Stated another way, verse 26, the one who holds fast is the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. And the reward, the reward for the one who conquers, to him I will give authority over the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. That's the reward. Now understand that this and all of, all of the rewards in all of these letters, they're different ways of, of depicting eternal life. We get it, that Jesus is the one who has the authority to judge. As it says in Psalm 2.9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But inasmuch as you are united in Christ, you will share in that victory over his enemies. Hold fast, and you will share in Christ's victory. And the other thing that they will get, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Verse 
On ch chapter 22 in Revelation 16, Jesus describes himself this way. He says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So here it is, brothers and sisters, very simply. The reward for holding fast to what you have, for not tolerating Jezebel, the reward is Christ himself forever. So he wraps it up. He who has a near means listen up, pay attention. We read this because Jesus is saying, listen up. We give it our focus because Jesus is saying, listen up. You're going to be tested and challenged. Listen up. Love and faith. Service and patient endurance. Hold on until I come. So keep growing in your love for God. Keep growing in your faith. And may you increase in joyful service as you patiently wait for Christ's return. And while you wait, while we wait, let's be zealous for truth and never tolerate idolatrous, sexually immoral corruptions to the gospel. Let's be clear with what the truth is. And if you do, Christ himself will be your eternal reward. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says. Let's pray. Father, we, we at times feel pressure from the world around us. So many things compete for our affections and can draw us away. We can easily become self-indulgent, seeking comfort more than anything else, liking money and possessions. They're not idols of wooden stone, but they're idols all the same. God forgive us for loving these things more than you. We repent of our idolatry, our self-indulgence, and we ask that you would keep us faithful to you. Keep us loving you above everything else. Keep us zealous for the truth. Keep us faithful in service and cause us to endure. Because God, what we need to hang on to is the hope of Christ's return. So God, keep us. And we know you will. We pray in Christ's name. Close with the song.